as CEOs think about transitioning out, the natural question is, who is transitioning in? This is not a conversation that should start when you're a year or two out, when you're 60 days out, where this is not a last minute conversation around succession planning. This is something that should truly start on day one of your role. And in fact, when we were talking to Brad Smith of Intuit, he described being coached literally on his first day in the job that today is the day you start succession planning. From McKinsey & Company, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. That was Blair Epstein, one of our guests today. Now, it's natural to think about CEO succession as you start preparing to leave your role as the CEO. But as Blair points out, it's actually quite important to do this much sooner, as there are many things that need to be put into place prior to that final phase of turning over one's leadership tenure. And today's discussion is about making that successful transition. It's the final episode in our special four-part series on the CEO journey, which starts with preparing to be a CEO candidate, to starting in the role, to renewing the role in mid-tenure, and finally, to laying the ground for a successful departure. Now I'd like to introduce our guests. Blair is a partner in our San Francisco Bay Area office and a leader in our CEO excellence practice. She also played a key role in the creation of our best-selling book, CEO Excellence. Blair, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Sean. I'm also excited to welcome Carolyn Dewar, a senior partner also in our Bay Area office. Carolyn founded and co-leads our CEO excellence practice, and she also co-authored our best-selling CEO excellence book which is the foundation of our work on the CEO journey. Carolyn, thanks for being here today. Great to be here, Sean. And finally, Kurt Strovink is a senior partner in our New York office. He leads our global CEO initiative and serves as a counselor to CEOs across industries, working at the intersection of strategy, personal leadership, mission building, and enterprise transformation. Kurt, it's great to have you here today. Thanks, Sean. Looking forward to the discussion. All right. Well, I am as well. And uh, Carolyn, we are at the final chapter of the CEO journey. But before we get into that final chapter, perhaps you could share a brief overview of the CEO excellence research that serves as the foundation for this four-part series. Super. Thanks so much, Sean. Many of you may have seen already the CEO excellence work that we have out there. And really, the, the impetus behind that work was to answer two questions. What is the CEO role anyway? And for those who do it really well and are exceptional, what is it that they do differently? What is their secret sauce? It wasn't just based on theory and quantitative analysis, although it is, it's very much based on the real stories, real experiences of some of the best CEOs in the world. We took an analytical approach to identify the top 200 CEOs in the world who've really outperformed, been in the top 20% of performance in their industry, have been enrolled for at least six years so that they've been there long enough to eat their own cooking and represent a diversity of industries and geographies and ownership structures. As part of the foundation into it, as I said, we asked the question, what is the CEO role? How do those who do it well really do it? All CEOs need to set direction, align the organization, so culture, talent, org design. They need to mobilize through leaders, right? Learning how to lead through their leadership team. How do you get that operating model at the top working effectively together to lead these at-scale enterprises? They need to engage with the board. That's a big part of the role that's sort of unique to being a CEO. What does that look like? Connect with all the external stakeholders. More and more people have an opinion on your business, right? How do you think about 
which stakeholders to engage with and why, and then manage their own personal effectiveness, their own time, their own energy, as they juggle all of these things. I think it was Satya Nadella when we talked to him about why the role is so lonely. He said, it's an information asymmetry problem, right? No one sees all of these six pieces the way you see it as a CEO. And it's your job to be the ultimate integrator across those six pieces. So that was the role itself, right? The, the second question was those who do it well, what are the mindsets? What are the ways of thinking, the ways of being that they have that are unique? And so we really wanted to dive in and understand how does that evolve throughout the tenure? And today, as Sean said, we're focusing on that last mile. Thanks. So in this last stage, as the CEO prepares for and executes their departure, what's unique about the leader's role at that point? Terrific. We think that this phase across the four phases of CEO leadership that we've been writing about and talking about with many CEOs is among the most important. It's a time when people are often reasonably settled. They've achieved a lot. And it's it's a time to really think about what is the next era of, of growth and uh, development look like for the company institutionally. And so this is an incredibly important step. So the first thing to say, I think, is that you know great CEOs tend to intuitively know that their, their transition is going to be important and that the next generation and how they set up that next generation is going to be vital to their own legacy. And they think actively about how to ensure that. And this is, this is complicated for several reasons. One, one reason is that, you know, oftentimes, even though somebody's quite experienced um, and established as a CEO, a transition out of the CEO role is really a first time in a career event. It's not easy. It's not something that they've had experience with before. They're new to this, right? So even somebody who's a legendary CEO hasn't necessarily been through a CEO transition. And so that's one of the reasons why we think extra attention and focus on this and merits, merits uh, consideration. A second is that there are different kinds of challenges and opportunities that can enter in. But if you look at uh, Lloyd Blankline's concept of, you know, when things are tough, you don't, you can't leave. And when things are great, you don't want to leave. Is often, it, you know, epitomizes the, 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 the idea that timing is not so easy to determine and commit to. There's often this notion of getting a mindset to think about your own success. It's not just yours. It's about the successors. And I think that's an important transition moment in the mindsets of many uh, CEOs that has to be experienced and lived. And then finally, you have to look forward at what you're going to do afterwards. There's life after being a CEO. There's fulfillment in that. There's there's new impact and new adventures. Um, and it's important to give that time. Otherwise, people will often stay put because they're not sure what they're going to do next. So these are a couple things that are important. And the reason that this is such an important uh, topic of conversation today and, and more broadly in the four phases of the CEO that we've looked at. Thank you, Kurt. So one of the first questions for a CEO in this context is, how do you know when it's time to start preparing for that graceful exit? And how, how do you make the decision to go, which you know most hope that they are making themselves as opposed to having it be made for them? When I might suggest a couple observations, the first is that getting the timing right and thinking about this is, is incredibly important. And oftentimes, you know, people hesitate on the timing uh, and it's very natural to do that because they haven't really thought through conditions of the markers for when it's the right time to leave. I would say there are many, but if I were to offer uh, two or three for, for, for folks' consideration, one is if you feel like the world around you is changing at a rate that will tee up a different S-curve or a next phase that, quite frankly, you're less capable or less natural to leave. That's often a good sign that the timing would be right to be thinking about a transition. A second is if you feel like the evolution of successors is at a point 
uh, where really the next generation can take over. And your leadership, even though it's been important for the period of time so far, you could actually get the next level of leadership and energy out of the next generation stronger and they're ready and they're ready. And sometimes there's also that that uh, companion consideration that if you do not get out of the chair at some point, if they're ready, they will leave. Um, and then you'll have to skip a generation almost on the next CEOs. And for many CEOs looking at that, they think about the grooming and all the development they've done for the next generation, and they'd rather make sure that generation is successful than the one that they haven't mentored as close to that follows next. So those are a couple of markers. Other things are, I would say, when you feel personally like you've given uh, what you can to the organization, sometimes when it, when it feels like uh, you're hearing everything, uh, you know everything that people are going to say before they say it. Uh, that's a good indication you're not learning as much in role because it's vital to have a CEO who's learning. Uh, those are kind of more personal considerations, but we do hear that from CEOs late in tenure who, who self-diagnose as, uh, as, as being ready for transition. Thanks, Kurt. That, that is quite a few things to consider. And what if you're not sure if you're actually ready to go or if your organization is ready for you to leave? Should you err on the side of leaving early or leaving later? It must be hard to get the timing perfectly right. Yeah, I would, I would say, um, I think our, our counsel would be to prepare to leave early is a good strategy for leaving maybe on time. And it is tough. It's emotional. It's also, a, as we've said, it's a question of people's readiness around you. It may be a question of the board dynamic and the maturity of that conversation around succession. And it can sometimes be about external events. But I think in general, Sean, we would say prepare early. When people look back at your tenure and realize that you left at the top, as opposed to several years afterwards where people would generally acknowledge it wasn't the top of the game. I think that's, I think, I think people are impressed by that in retrospect when they realize that that was partly a choice. You know, we always talk about how athletes stay an extra year or two, sometimes a little bit too long. Brad Smith uh, up into it often talks about the fact that he saw people in, in his network, not necessarily his company, but others who he felt left too late and was always wondering why they did. And then he realized, you know, it's, it's actually difficult when you get there to make plans early to leave. And, and so, you know, again, this is not an easy decision, but it is one that being self-conscious and, and, and thinking about early is helpful. Indeed, I, I'd imagine it must be. Uh, Kurt, you, you talked about how this is a, also a deeply personal decision. What role does outside input play in making that call? For example, one might encounter activist investors or other pressure suggesting that it's time to transition to a new leader. How should those outside voices influence the decision? And, and maybe Carolyn and Blair, you want to jump in on this also. I think there's a lot of outside influences play in this. In general, it's this complex uh, combination of both external factors and internal factors that I think guides the timing. But external factors can include, as you point out, um, I mean, something extreme. Hopefully, this isn't the precipitating cause, but it can be an activist pushing for a different CEO. It can be a change in market um, and industry evolution that you believe suggests somebody else who's better uh, for the role. You think about some of the leading CEOs that we've studied. Sometimes people did transition um, at one because they understood that they they were less suited to the next stage. I mean, when Gail Kelly did an amazing job on customer focus in the bank that she was leading in Westpac, um, she did, she independently felt that, the, that that when they started pivoting to a digital future, it was the right time to have somebody else who was stronger in that area come on on board. So that's a good example of thematic external kind of change in the industry that can prompt it. Just a build on that one. I think it's interesting. The external factors can also tip it the other way sometimes. So I think we saw many CEOs who might have been ready to go and then the pandemic happened and they thought, look for continuity for my company, continuity for my business. I need to stick it through. 
right? Ew, like I actually just need, and you're seeing some of that now is there's more folks leaving kind of uh, on the other side. They kind of stuck it through for those few years to help their organization get through. And now there's almost a, a pent up or a delayed leaving. And Kurt and I were with the CEO last week, actually in Asia, where he had wanted to go. And it was his board who said, please don't go yet. We do hear that a lot, by the way. Boards don't like to change any more than, than CEOs do sometimes. So they said, will you actually stay on in a very deliberate transitional phase? And there's a multi-year transition with the new person coming coming up through the ranks, and they've done it that way. So the pressure can go either way. Thanks, Carolyn. That's a really interesting point, too, regarding the board's role in all of this. How would you suggest a CEO bring up the topic of transition with their board without having them question the CEO's commitment to their role? And at what point do you bring the rest of the organization along in terms of that potential timing so that you don't create a lame duck situation? This this is a great, a great question and maybe a couple observations on it. One is, I think that that box is open, ideally, from the day one. You should be thinking about succession. You should be thinking about development of people, pipeline, and it's no admission of lack of commitment uh, you know, to be focused on that human capital equation from early on. And I think pushing that uh, is actually a strength of good CEO leadership. And and one way to do it, just make sure it's not misunderstood by by a board, is to emphasize that, look, from the beginning, I want to be focused on succession, not because I'm eager expecting to leave or planning to leave anytime soon. I mean, you'll be the judge of that. But um, I, I'm serious about building leadership capabilities and making sure that we have multiple candidates and that we're strong. And so you're going to see me do some things and rate topics, et cetera, early, but just I uh, want to put that in context as to what it means. I think something like that can be enough. But but the first answer I would have is from the board's perspective and the CEO's, that should be an early and often conversation, but a gradual one that's building towards experiences of a, 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 you know, a group of next generation, you know, diverse complementary complimentary uh, candidates who could actually take on uh, that role in time. I think second, though, with respect to the senior team, I think you want to be a little bit closer to the time that you transition and you have, you know, too many thoughts and distractions and have the whole organization beginning to kind of like implicitly vote about who, did, who do they think is going to be the next CEO. And, and you can start that way too soon. And I've seen cases where you're three years out, four years out, and people are talking at a level that's too high for the own organization's health about that question. So I might suggest you plan in the very beginning with the board, but you begin to concretize or make much more official something closer to the event. Yeah. And picking up on this theme, right, of finishing the job, setting the next generation up for success, this is probably one of the questions we get most often and is top of mind for CEOs. Because as, as CEOs think about transitioning out, the natural question is, who is transitioning in? And as Kurt alluded to, this, this is not a conversation that should start when you're a year or two out, when you're 60 days out, where this is not a last minute conversation around succession planning. This is something that should truly start on day one of your role. Um, and in fact, when we were talking to uh, Brad Smith of Intuit, um, he described being coached literally on his first day in the job that today is the day you start succession planning. And when you do that, don't think of it just as replacing yourself, but rather think of it as leadership development for your team, right? This is one lens through which you're going to develop your most senior leaders. And if you have that mindset, to Kurt, a point you made earlier, it is going to be a conversation you have with your board as well from day one. And so in Brad's case, he talked about it in his first board meeting, talked about it every quarter in a verbal briefing, once a year in a more formal way. And so he described that over 11 years, he discussed succession with his board 44 times. 
And now it's not enough to just talk about who you have, how ready they are, where they're at. You also need to make the chess moves to give successors the opportunities to become CEO ready. Pick on another one of the CEOs we spent time with, Piyush Gupta of DBS Bank. Describe how he worked with his head of HR, worked through a very extensive slate, and came up with about 100, 100 odd high potential leaders that whether they were CEO successors or other senior leadership successors, they were going to case manage their careers in a very deliberate way. And what that looks like is you, yes, you're giving them coaching and feedback, helping them learn and understand what the role might look like, but you're also deliberately putting them into situations where they can learn and excel and elevate that role. Whether that's rotations into different jobs, that functional leaders can get operational experience so that leaders can lead across the organization. It might look like giving them, particularly later on in the process, more time-bound, bite-sized, but high-profile projects where they can demonstrate enterprise leadership. You might be sending them to places just where they can learn and grow. Right, This, again, has to be done over a long period of time because if you wait till the last minute, there's just not that much you can do to help someone become CEO ready. And so again, at this stage, you started on day one, which can feel very strange to say, hello, I'm your new CEO. Let's talk about replacing me. But you've come in with that mindset of leadership development through your tenure. And importantly, as you've done that, you avoid one of the dynamics that Kurt alluded to, right? You cannot allow this to become a political horse race. That is incredibly destructive to the health of a senior team. The politics reverberate through the organization. Um, and so Gal Kelly at Westpac had a really interesting approach to this that I think is worth all of us learning from, where her approach was she was direct with folks in terms of here's how we're trying to develop you as a leader. Here's potential paths you could go down. Maybe being a CEO is one of them. She was also equally clear that that we, that I am watching your behavior and politicking is unacceptable. And so you do want to think about how you are going to get ahead of that dynamic because you do need to continue to have a high-functioning organization and senior leadership ranks. And you also have to be able to make the right moves around succession planning. Thanks, Blair. And what's your take on appointing a deputy CEO or some sort of heir apparent to ease that transition? Either the board or the current CEO says, this is the designate. We anticipate this person will become CEO. And does that help eliminate the risk of that race that you were talking earlier about? Does something like that work in your experience? Uh, and let me first start by saying that there are very different flavors of deputy CEO type roles we see. And I, I, in this particular instance, it may be a formal role with that kind of title. Sometimes leaders create almost heir apparent positions, like a president type role, um, often in the spirit of elevating the profile, allowing that person to gain a broader set of experience, um, including with external stakeholders like investors. So there's there's a spectrum of ways to do this. Um, and I'm going to give the dreaded consultant answer of it depends in terms of when it makes sense. Uh, l- let me start with some of the drawbacks, actually, because I think this is one of those situations that when you first think about it, it seems like, of course, it's great. We should do this all the time, right? It gives the person extra seasoning. I'm there to coach them and support them. They can basically become CEO with training wheels. Here's where it can go wrong. It can go wrong in terms of role clarity. It can um, really slow things down in the organization if people don't know who actually makes the call. Is it you? Is it the deputy CEO? And they don't know how you're evolving that over time. It can allow people to play you off each other, intentionally or unintentionally, if you don't present a united front. It can be misinterpreted as a signal of lack of confidence in your deputy if the belief is that you are giving them the training wheels because they're not actually ready. Where it may make sense 
is where you have that clear, that clear successor. You can live with other people leaving if they wanted to be that successor and they're learning early that they're not. And you believe that you can control for some of those downsides I just described. You believe that you can truly work as a united front, that you can find a relationship, a working style that both works for the two of you and also works for the organization. And you genuinely believe, you know, hand to heart that you are doing this to set the next generation up. Um, but Kirk, Carolyn, I'd be, I'd be curious to get your take on this one. Blair, I thought that was a really good description of a number of the failure modes and, and the thoughtfulness around that. The only other thing I would add is um, there's something about a new CEO and the self-authorship and starting strong and what they do themselves with the organization to, to take an, a, a, you know, an opportunity that's in front of them to institutionally renew. We believe that these moments, these periodic moments of institutional renewal in the life cycles of CEOs are really important for the companies as a whole. And so when you retard that natural timeline by too much of, you know, timing before the person actually becomes officially the CEO. I mean, do they do a listening tour or not? Is it consequential in that interim period as deputy CEO? Are they able to activate the full potentiality of that CEO role? Do they have to wait two years to do that? How does that work? Those are other things that I might think about on behalf of the company as a whole um, in terms of, uh, of getting the benefit, if you will, of a new CEO. It's easier to do when it's a six or 12-month period of time than it is when it's 24 months because it's almost a deferment uh, that makes you have to think differently about the operating model. And then the other thought is just the title. Deputy CEO is strong, uh, particularly strong, probably invites more questions as to why not CEO. There are also ways, whether it's president, COO, other things to transition through other title categories that may be a little bit more natural for an organization, especially two years out. Got it. What does a CEO do when they actually don't have a natural or have natural internal successors? Obviously, the goal is to build a strong bench. But if you're a CEO looking at that transition, how would you approach it when the potential timing for the bench being ready really doesn't match the timeline that you've set out for your own transition? You're asking the question because you realize there's a gap and you want to address it. The CEOs we spoke to, some of them would be and were quite direct, saying if you don't have at least three internal successors, not all of whom are perfect, not all of whom may be ready at the same time, you haven't done your job as a CEO in terms of getting the right folks into the roles currently. In most cases, if you have exceptional talent in your most important executive roles, the odds that at least one or two of them couldn't eventually become CEO are quite small. And they would also argue that the succession planning is a core part of your role. The other piece of it is there, there is nothing to say that this also cannot involve being thoughtful about your external network and who could come in from the outside and building those relationships. Um, this is something we also, for what it's worth, would advise boards to be doing in parallel. And it all starts from having a very clear view of not generically what makes a great CEO, but specific to my organization, the S-curves I could imagine going it going on next. What would I want the next person to bring to the job? What combination of experiences and track record, knowledge, network, personal leadership attributes do I think we need in our next CEO? Use that as a North Star for your internal leadership development. But it is also a great problem-solving exercise to say, where else might we find those kinds of people? How could I begin cultivating relationships, getting them excited about this organization in an appropriately soft and diplomatic way? And again, importantly, this has to be done in partnership with your board. This, this relates to one of the other points in this, in this stage of the journey is this can be really hard for CEOs. You ultimately don't make the call on succession. It is not your call. And then you have to step away. Thanks, Blair. Oh, okay. So once a new CEO is chosen, 
what is the best way to prepare and execute the handover? And, and what's the ideal timing? The first is building that relationship with your successor, having explicit, open, honest conversations with them about what this handover needs to look like between the two of you specifically. Um, And one thing that can be important to bring into that room is this idea that their job is not to be the next you. Think about how you make this case that your job is not to replicate me. Again, in whatever ways you can connect with, help them understand what it would look like to be their own CEO. And particularly if it's an internal successor, who admires you, who you have invested in and mentored, make sure they feel that they have the blessing from you to do that. The next piece here um, is about resolving these unpleasant but important decisions that may be lurking. Uh, Michael Fisher, the former CEO of Cincinnati Children's, talked about the fact that you have political capital that the new guy doesn't, the new gal doesn't. How can you uh, spend that capital to make sure that you aren't handing over any messes, right? Clean the slate where it makes sense. As you're doing this, make sure that you've got real agreement on what the transition approach is going to look like. Role clarity is important during these phases. So that, again, a little bit to what we talked about with the deputy CEO dynamic, you want to avoid those pitfalls even in a clean transition so that folks know who's who's in charge today, who's doing what, and your successor feels supported. Particularly in the case of an internal handover, what we often see is something like a six to nine month handover phase where the first couple of months are, you are still the CEO, your successor may or may not be named, but you're giving them opportunities to step up, to shadow, to learn with a safety net. The next phase, you may be acting more like co-pilots, right? Again, with absolute role clarity, do not let this phase drag on too long. And then finally, and importantly, there's the phase where you step back, right? You are there to advise and to support. You're distancing yourself from the operations. And it's during this phase that you might formally lead the organization. And that, of course, then extends to the last stage of this, which is to get out of the way. And this sounds easy, but can be incredibly hard. Think, think for example, through how you'll handle a situation where um, a board member, an investor, a client, a customer that you know well, a member of the top team gives you a phone call and says, hey, the new CEO, I, I don't know how well they're doing with this. Can you just give me some coaching? Can you help me navigate this? Those are the sorts of sticky and formal situations that can come up. They can make it very hard as a well-intentioned former CEO to give your successor room to run. And to make this practical, one, one tool that we have found very helpful for CEOs as they're leaving the organization is to think through what is your last 100-day plan. New CEOs do this all the time, right? We talk about what is your first 100-day plan. Bring the same discipline when you're walking out the door. That's really interesting, Blair. And so what should be in this sort of last 100-day plan and uh, what would it cover? And and also, how might it dovetail with what your successor's first 100-day plan might look like? The first right set of questions, set of things to think about is about how you're going to wrap up your own legacy. First, what are you going to do to bring your current strategy, that current S-curve to closure? Right. What are the things you're going to tie a bow around so that they're done? Now, unnote while you do this, you want to appropriately engage your successor in the decisions they're going to have to live with. So for example, you probably should not be unilaterally doing game-changing M&A at this stage in the journey or making decisions like that that your successor right, is going to see out without their deep involvement and ability to put their thumbprint on those decisions. The other part of wrapping up your legacy can be about finding closure, both for yourself, but also for others in the organization. 
Spend the time to make the rounds, check in with people, say thank you. Let them say thank you and celebrate you. So again, that people feel like, like this chapter has been closed appropriately. The next set of things to consider putting into your uh, final 100-day plan is what are the gifts that you're going to leave behind? What are the parting gifts that you can give to your successor? One of these we've talked about, right? It's, it's this idea of are there tough calls that you can make that you're not going to put on the new CEO's shoulders? These could be people decisions. They can be budget calls. They could be uh, pruning the portfolio of what you're in. Whatever it is, how can you shoulder some of these tough calls, some of the hangover from your own legacy to set the new CEO up as well as possible? And as you do that, the, the softer parting gift you can offer is to bring a relentless commitment to advocating for, championing, and telegraphing your confidence in your successor. In every conversation, how do you leave the person on the other side more excited they were than they were when the discussion started about the next generation of leadership? Got it. So you're essentially preparing the ground so the organization is ready for your successor. Are there any practical or cautionary notes you'd have about how you hand over activities or files to this next leader? You want to think about handing over both work and relationships. How can you help them build stakeholder relationships, internal stakeholders, external stakeholders, hand over those relationships, hand over the business knowledge, particularly where there's big in-flight pieces of work that will continue. Also share some of the behind the scenes counsel, talk to them about talent, talk to them about the things you know that are, that are in your mind that no one else might know that it would be so helpful for someone new to know. And then last but certainly not least, again, Really get clear with your CEO on this last phase of the transition where you are stepping away. What, if any, role are you going to continue playing? For example, one common model is to stay on in an advisory capacity where it's fully at the discretion of the new CEO. You're available to continue advising and coaching after they've taken over. One other model that's become increasingly common in the last few years is the, the former CEO becoming the executive chair of the board. Again, it's a way to provide support to the new CEO, preserving role clarity because you're not in a not in a CEO-esque role, but you're still there. It can be enormously tempting. It does, however, come with very real downsides. Um, the Wall Street Journal in an article had a great quote where they said, imagine, imagine there's a new president. The old president moves out of the Oval Office but still lives in the White House. That is very difficult. A number of the CEOs we talked about, even CEOs who had successfully played the executive chairman role, talked about how challenging that is for the successor to be their own person and how much they wish that they had stepped away. Because you want to allow your successor to critique you. You want to allow your successor to identify what they want to do better. And that is hard for them to do while you are still in the room. Now that is to be clear, not to say that there aren't situations where the executive chair role makes, makes good sense. Right, where genuinely the person needs extra support and seasoning, where there is, for example, maybe something like a big M&A piece of work going on that can't be handed over at the same timeline as the rest of the transition. So again, there, there are times where this makes sense, but do tread with caution. Do really make sure you think through both the upsides and the downsides before making that a part of your next chapter. Okay. So now I would think that a, a given company structure could also introduce some nuances on how, how these transitions may play out. Are there any differences, for example, with family-owned businesses, uh, perhaps a very different scenario with different relationships? Maybe, Carolyn, you could take that one? 
I'm happy to take this one. I think there could be there could be a whole other session on family business, and we should think about whether we do it. In the number of situations I've been close to in this one, it's that the question tends to be more, when will the parent decide that the child is, quote, ready? And that that's an ever-moving target and a little bit nebulous. And that's what's really, really hard about the situation, right? You know, the the next generation always feels that they're ready, and the, the marker keeps moving on. What do I need to do? What box do I need to check? There's a whole bunch of other dynamic, obviously, at play in those situations. But I, I actually think bringing some of the rigor that you would have in a non-family-owned business to structure the conversation can be really helpful, right? What is it that the company needs of its CEO right now? What are the proof points, right, that the next candidate is ready? Is If there's any seasoning, let's be very deliberate about doing it and putting a timeline on it. And then thinking about the role clarity in the transition. I think all these tools, if anything, are even more helpful in a family context. There's just a lot of other dynamic at play, obviously, as well. Yeah. And the, the one thing that I'll add to that is um, the experience will also be different for the organization. Uh, we talked earlier about how in, in a non-family-owned business, you perhaps have more choice in terms of how much transparency and how early you give it in terms of who the potential successors are, what moves you're making, things like that. Um, people look at that differently when they're looking at family members who are in senior roles in your family-owned business. And so it's worth being aware of the dynamics you may be creating through the organization and continuing to hold that high bar around. There can be no politicking. We're not going to play games with this, right? That becomes an important thing to monitor explicitly in these sorts of situations as well. I would imagine we basically don't want this transition to become an episode of the TV show Succession. Right. <laughs> maybe, maybe one thing, if I could, Sean, on this one, one other thing that might be different and that might be helpful and it might be more upside oriented versus uh, consideration or problem is um, oftentimes in succession in families businesses, there is an opportunity to, to have a narrative around this this business, this the reasons for being the values of the company, the, the way it it uh, it is developed over time and what it's what it's part of its proposition in the market, if you will, that is a very values and meanings based kind of positioning, which sometimes is amplified by successors who will dial into that and can and can speak with it with a with even greater authority because they're from those families and so i do think that's also a hidden benefit sometimes to family transitions if that successor and the incumbent ceo are thoughtful about that and the story can be enriched and deepened thank you so let's say that you've handled all the transition preparation well and now the big day has finally come to hand over the reins and to say goodbye to one's former organization. I'd imagine that must be a really difficult day for many CEOs. What would you say to the CEOs listening um, that might help them ease the trepidation and deal with the psychological aspect of this? I, how to prepare for and focus on their next phase and potentially even dealing with, I'd imagine, a sense of loss. I, I would say one core reason why sometimes CEOs stay a little bit longer, and Kurt alluded to this, is they're not sure what's next, right? That's unfamiliar. It's unknown. They're really comfortable doing what they're doing. And it's actually much easier to both step aside at the appropriate time when you're excited about your life beyond. And part of it is self-reflection, right? What is important to you beyond being a CEO, right? It can be relationships, right? Friends and family. It can be hobbies. It can be meaningful social and community work. For some, it might be another gig as being a CEO, right? It, depending on, on where you are in your career. But thinking about what are you excited for for the future? What's really important to you? 
and in your your irks of energy in your life, what do you want to spend those those hours doing? You know, the CEO role can be quite all consuming while you're in it. And while it's wonderful and rewarding and challenging, it can be at the expense of other things. And I think the CEOs that find the transition the most smooth is either because they've done a good job nurturing those things, even as a CEO, so they have great relationships, they have the hobbies, they have other interests outside, or at least in towards the, the end of their tenure, when they have a little bit of breathing room, they make a deliberate effort to re-engage in those things and think about what's next. And part of this is maybe having conversations with friends and family and others to remind yourself that being a CEO is just one chapter, just one piece of who you are. It is interesting when we've when we've talked to CEOs who've left at their peak, right? They're both very proud of and excited about what they achieved as a CEO, but they're also very conscious both of part of their legacy is leaving the place strong and leaving at their peak, and they should be proud of that going forward. And they have a set of things that are meaningful to them beyond. Do you want to be a board member? Do you want to do you know, social work? Do you want to tip into the business in other areas? You can start having those lunches and conversations early to even test the waters and see how realistic those things might be. And in your discussions with top CEOs, how often did you find them taking another CEO position or at least planning to do that at their next phase, a second or third act, if you will? Did they do it right away? And are there any differences in those cases and how you think about your transition? For some, this notion of slowing down might just not be how they're wired. Yeah, I mean, I think so. The the whether to do another CEO role or not often tends to be a you know a factor of either age, personal wealth creation, where they are in their life, right? So we, I, I've seen that play out various different ways. There's a, there's a path I've seen some take that's been really interesting, which is almost this deliberate idea of taking a gap year or a gap six months. I know that's a bit of a British term. Whether that next thing is a CEO gig board roles, investor roles, whatever they want to do, actually setting a timeline and saying, you know what, for six months, I'm actually going to take a gap. And it sort of fends off those offers that they start getting right away because most people, the phone starts ringing with offers and it's easy to want to just fill the hole by saying yes to a bunch of things. It helps you really double down on your health, your sleep, your relationships. And a lot of times the CEOs who do that the decision they make at the end of that six months is quite different than the one they would have made in the thick of leaving the role. And they realize they're in a different headspace with different priorities and they've connected to themselves in a different way. So that's just something I've seen a number do, Kurt and, and Bill Blair, I'm sure you've seen other techniques as well. I mean, the only other thing I would say is I think it's a mindset issue. I mean, when people leave as CEOs, uh, they're at the top of a really unusual set of skills that are incredibly valuable to the rest of the world, even beyond their CEO tenures. That doesn't always mean that you are the person as the CEO, but there's a your your uh, your obligation, if you will, and your responsibility, and your even your interest in the next generation can absolutely continue beyond the succession step. So think about that as setting up a ability of you to be a coach for others. A lot of people find a lot of personal satisfaction in helping others in that next phase as part of a portfolio of a larger set of things they do. So I would look at it as an affirmative set of skills that do have market value uh, as long as you can take yourself out of the equation. That's the hardest part. Thank you. And that sounds like a great point for us to close. Carolyn, Blair, Kurt, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Terrific. Thanks, John. 
And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us today. For more on CEO Excellence, the CEO Transition, and the other podcasts in this series, I hope you'll visit our CEO Journey collection page available on mckinsey.com slash CEO Journey. You'll find all the articles there, as well as other podcasts related to the topic of CEO excellence. We've also included a link to that page in our show notes today. As always, if you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, we encourage you to email us at itsr at mckinsey.com. That stands for Inside the Strategy Room. You can also share your ratings and reviews on your favorite podcast player with many thanks to everyone who's already done so. We really appreciate all the great comments and feedback. Please keep them coming. And if you enjoyed today's episode and you'd like to subscribe, you can follow our weekly series on your favorite podcast player. And that's where you can also access our entire library of previous episodes. We also offer an Inside the Strategy Room collection page available at mckinsey.com slash ITSR. And there you can easily browse our prior podcasts across six major themes, as well as access written transcripts of all of those conversations. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest publications and insights, we encourage you to sign up at our insights page available at mckinsey.com slash SCF for strategy and corporate finance, or follow us on Twitter or X at MCK strategy, or connect with us on LinkedIn at the McKinsey strategy and corporate finance practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again next week inside the strategy room.